As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Art of the Hustle is a production of iHeartRadio. You're listening to The Art of the Hustle, the show that breaks down how some of the world's most fascinating people have hustled and learned their way into achieving great things. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit. And on today's podcast, I had the opportunity to chat with Reshma Sunjani. Reshma Sunjani is the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code, the international nonprofit organization working to close the gender gap in technology and change the image of what a computer programmer looks like. She is the author of the international bestseller, Brave, Not Perfect, and her TED Talk, Teach Girls Bravery, Not Perfection, has more than 4 million views. Reshma began her career as an attorney and activist. In 2010, she surged onto the political scene as the first Indian American woman to run for U.S. Congress. On the show today, Reshma and I talk about how her highly publicized political defeat led to a pretty profound personal reckoning. You'll hear how she emerged from her loss unbroken and adopted this, quote, Cardi B, no fucks given, as she puts it, outlook on life and how witnessing the gender gap in computing classes firsthand led her to start Girls Who Code. Just a quick note to provide a bit of context. Our conversation was recorded remotely during the height of the Black Lives Matter protests in the United States. That said, please enjoy my conversation with Reshma Sunjani. And thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So great to talk to you. Of course. I, you know, in this unprecedented moment in time, I was really eager to get your insight on what we're all going through. You have such a unique perspective and I know you tend to get deeply involved in the moment that we're in. Yeah. I mean, look, I think we're all grieving, you know, for many of us to watch the murder of George Floyd on video and to see it like that, you can't unsee that. I think it's just caused an enormous amount of pain. I think to our black brothers and sisters in particular, But for the rest of us, I think for many of us, it's been a reckoning looking inward to say, you know, what, what country do we live in where this happens and continues to happen and doesn't feel like anything changes? And, you know, what can I do as an ally, as a mother, as a father, as an activist, as a teacher, right, to bring about real change? 
I saw that you have been going to the protests. You brought your children to the protests. Tell us about that. You know, it was, it was powerful. You know, when my first son, Sean was born, I feel like he came out of the womb and onto the streets, right? He was born in 2015. When I spoke at the Women's March on Washington, he was on my hip. He was almost two. And, you know, he was in March for Our Lives, you know, Black Lives Matter. He's been marching and been a part of the movement. In many ways, I, you know, I, I participated in my first march when I was 13. And so, you know, I wanted him to know what it's like to kind of stand up and fight for what's right, but to also really understand, like, the injustices. Mm-hmm. And so, Sai, my, my baby, who's four months old, Nahal and I just kind of looked at each other and we just said, you know, we, we got to get out. We got to go out there and we got to bring the kids. And so we, you know, put them in masks and it was really, it felt really good to be out there. Uh, you know, I think it's a moment where if you can't be protesting and you can't be marching, I think you just, all of us need to be doing something, you know, to, to amplify that black lives matter and that we have to fight, you know, for, police reform and we have to fight against institutional racism. You know, we've also been having a lot of really hard conversations in Girls Who Code about what it means. You know, I have a diverse staff, a diverse team, and a lot of them are just hurting and are effective. And Mm -hmm. we're asking us, like, how do we even, as an organization, deepen our commitment? And I love that you're both, you know, going to the protests and engaging your children in the mission in a visceral and personal way. And you also, you know, try to achieve and approach these things from a political standpoint as well. You were, you know, in 2010, the first Indian American woman to run for Congress, correct? Mm-hmm. It's always been something I've, ins- I've admired about you is that you know, you, you were always thinking about the long game and, you know, the immediate. Talk to us more about that. How, how do you see ways for us to be effective advocates? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think Barack Obama actually said something really interesting about this a few days ago. When he spoke, he said, you know, there's no one way to be an ally. Like, there's no, there's no one way to be involved and to make, make a difference. And so for some, it's protest. For some, it's, you know, like funding black organizations, you know, for some, it's like looking at internally at your own organization and say, where's my privilege sit? You know, have I been doing actually enough? For a lot of my black activist friends, you know, there's been people who are leaders in this movement forever. And so like the movement doesn't need help in that way. They need more funding. But what we really need to do is like deepen allyship. You know, one of the most compelling things, in addition, you know, to watching a murder on video, was seeing the other officers standing there, seeing the Asian American officer standing there, seeing the Arab store owner who called the police. Bystanders play a huge role. It's not, it wasn't just one bad apple, right? It was a group of people who didn't do anything. And I think that we see that every single day. Black Americans see that every single day. And so I think the first thing people should be asking themselves is looking within. Like, am I having those tough conversations with my family? Am I educating my children on how to be anti-racist? Am I doing everything I can to like support diversity and inclusion in my own organization? Am I lifting up Black voices and Black leadership? And so it's not just about protesting, right? It's about those other hard, important questions and changes that we have to make. Well, Girls Who Code is such a wonderful organization. And what is the, what is the number now of women that have, been, that have gone through the program? 
you know, we've reached 300,000 girls. Amazing. You know, and we've, we've, I should say we've taught 300,000 girls to reach millions. But, you know, earlier, Jeff, you asked me about politics. You know, I, I ran for office when I was 33 years old. I was the first South Asian American woman to run. You know, I ran because I was a daughter of refugees and I believe the political arena was the place to make change. And then I lost. And I said, you know, of all the things that I saw, like, what's the thing that I feel like I can actually do. And it was really about getting more girls into coding and specifically getting more poor and underserved girls into coding. Because, you know, as we've had so many conversations about over the past week, like racism is is institutional and it's structural. The opportunities you have, where you get to go to school, the jobs that you get, the amount of money that you make, all of that plays a huge role and shapes what your future looks like. And it was clear, you know, in 2010, like like tech, that's where it was at, right? That's where the jobs are at. That's where Twitter, Facebook, and, and all these amazing companies that were being created and where the resources were and where the next generation of wealth was. But when you looked at that, you didn't see people of color and you certainly didn't see women. And so I felt like by teaching girls to code and by teaching girls of color to code, I could really impact that structural change. And so that's what's always led someone like me who was not a coder right? Who didn't dream of starting a nonprofit to get into this space. And, and, and ironically, like, it's also like, you know, you never know where failure takes you because though I didn't make it to Congress, I think I've inspired and taught a generation of young women who are making deep change. Absolutely. And I love, I love the philosophy of brave, not perfect in my experiences with summit and the type of entrepreneur I am personally you know, you have those 1% who can actually do everything, uh, who are just geniuses and can, you know, solve the Rubik's Cube of whatever space they're in. And then the rest of us that do get, you know, some of these these things built that are, you know, exceptional, um, like Girls Who Code. Has this always been part of your personality when you were a little girl? Was this something that you grew into? Well, I, I was definitely like a perfectionist growing up, meaning like I was always a good girl. Like I felt like because my parents sacrificed so much, I wanted to get straight A's and I gravitated towards things I was good at. And I wasn't really a risk taker. You know, when I woke up in my early thirties and I, I was like, like literally coming home every night, drinking a bottle of wine and just asking myself, like, is this it? Like I was in a corporate job that I hated and I wasn't quote young anymore. For me, I don't know about you, Jeff, but like I was very clear when I was little, like I wanted to run for office. Like I knew that that was like what we say in Hinduism, like what your Dharma was. And it was like time was running out, right? Yeah. So I I ran for office and I, I lost, you know, spectacularly, but it was like kind of a reckoning for me in terms of like, wow, like I failed and I failed miserably and it, but it didn't break me. And so like, what are the other things that I've talked myself out of? What are the other things that I haven't tried because I was worried that I would fail from that moment of losing that race in 2010? Cause it was, a, it was like a very public loss and it was really painful. I, I just started living life very differently where like I went for things that I didn't get and I tried for things and I put myself out there and I didn't, I stopped caring what people thought. Like I, really ascribed to this kind of Cardi B, no fucks given life, I found that I could not only make a difference, but like I was happier and I was more joy in my life. So 2010, it's just incredible how much the world has changed when you look at, you know, the representation granted for the first time in this current Congress, 
comparatively to like 10 years ago when you were running for office, the solution of girls who code. So, you know, there, there are all these, you know, next generation, 21st century jobs. Many of them depend on coding. As I understand it, it's still underserved. There's more opportunities that exist than there are people to do the work. Was this theory and thesis correct? Has this expanded in the last 10 years? Is it still like, how, how has it changed? You know, when we started this in 2012, it wasn't just about coding, but it was about like this belief that girls are change makers, that kids are change makers, and that if you can give them access to technology, that they'll solve societal problems. So like, I remember my first class, I had invited my friends from the New York Immigration Coalition to come in. And I, we had basically given our students a task of like building something for undocumented students. And it just blew me away the things that they wanted to create, whether it was a game or whether it was like, you know, a website. And I was like, wow, like, what are the other things that that we can use technology to solve? Climate change, cure to cancer, you know, an app to locate a gun that's in the school, and all these things. And so what I've seen over the past, you know, eight years is, is, is young women building things that are going to help make our world a better place. If you look at the past year and a half, every movement has been led by young people, you know, whether it's on climate change and whether it's on Black Lives Matter, whether it's on gun reforms, it's all been young people because we're literally in this moment where like our children behave like leaders and our leaders behave like children. You know, you have Lafayette Square and Donald Trump versus these peaceful protesters who are putting their life on their line to fight for democracy. And so it is really, to me, like, and I feel like I saw this in my first group of girls in 2012. And I was like, you know what? Screw it. Like, if I can't get to Congress, because these kids are going to do it. Like, these kids are going to save us. So for me, I'm in this moment of, like, just real amplification. How do we double down on our youth? And how do we give them the tools to make this country kind of represent its best ideals. What drove you to write the book, Brave Not Perfect? What, what, what led to that outcome for you? And I know it's not your first book, um, but I, I really love the premise and it couldn't be more timely. So when girls come to our program, none of them know how to code. And every teacher would tell me the same story was that during that first week when girls are learning how to code, you know, a teacher, a student will call her teacher over and she'll say, I don't know a code to write. And the teacher looks to her computer screen and she'll see a blank text editor. So when she presses undo, she saw that her student wrote code, but then deleted it. So instead of saying, hey, look, I wrote this, I I don't know, maybe the semicolon's missing, she rather showed nothing at all. And so I tell the story at TED and, you know, 5 million people watch my talk and I am inundated with women who are saying, I do this too. Dads who are saying, my daughter does this too. Like young women were saying, I do this too. And whether they were doctors, lawyers, teachers, musicians, activists, or artists, whatever, whoever they were, someplace in their life, they were deleting their code, right? They were giving up before they even tried. And so it was this like universal experience that we faced or experienced as women, irregardless of race, socioeconomic status, geography, et cetera. And so I wrote the book to really go deeper and to understand you know, are we socialized to be perfect? When does it start? What's the impact? And I think most importantly, can we unlearn it? And, you know, I found that the answer to that is yes. And so now I'm on a bravery mission. And like, all I want to do is teach women to be imperfect. 
and to teach them how to index towards bravery. And that message couldn't be more important right now in the middle of COVID. We'll be back with more Art of the Hustle after the break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, chief marketing and growth officer at AT AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. How does that break away from or complement the lean-in philosophy? I think that in many ways with lean in, it was like so many women are like, I'm leaning in and nothing's happening. And this isn't about there's something wrong with us. Like we're not crazy that we've literally been socialized to be this way. In many ways, like the lean in nature was like all about perfectionism right? We were getting up straight A's. We were at the top of our class. We were, you know what I mean? Leaning in super hard, but we weren't getting any payoff. And part of what we needed to 
learned was almost take a nod from, you know, uh, the, the, the other sex in our life and to say, you know, what if we did things imperfectly? What if we did things at 80%? What if we pursued excellence instead of perfection? What if we raised mm-hmm. our hand when we're in a meeting, even though we don't know exactly what we want to say? What if we started that summit series when I didn't have all the answers and I'd never been an entrepreneur? What would the world look like? You sound like uh, someone that, that you know, has benefited by patriarchy. We do an injustice to our boys too. You know, like as a mother of sons, like Nahan, I got in a fight after we had Sean. Um, like Sean is this very, like he's like a little Gandhi. He's kind, he's cautious. He's not jumping off any monkey bars. And like, you know, when he was about three years old, he came to me and said, you know what, mommy, I'm afraid of the dark. So I went to Bye Bye Baby. I bought the nightlight and I would go upstairs every night and put it in his room and then I'd walk out. Two minutes later, Nahal would come up the stairs and he'd pull out the nightlight. Sean would scream. And finally we did this and I finally said, Nahal, I'm like, what is your problem? Like he's afraid of the dark and Nahal, and you know, my husband, he is a feminist, right? He is an ally. He says, you know what, Rush, we got to toughen him up. And I said, Nahal, if Sean was a girl, would you let him have the nightlight? And he looks at me and he's like, oh my God, you're right. I would. So like so much of the way we raise our kids and our boys and our girls in in terms of gender, it's so uh, unconscious. It's like the way we've been raised. And so we raise our boys to be risk takers, right? To raise their hands when they don't know the answer, to try to launch startups when they don't have experience, like to pursue rejection and failure. And they don't take it personally, right? But because we raise our girls to be good girls and because they know they're always almost calculating, right? Should I tell you what I really think or should I tell you what I think you want to hear because I want to make you happy? It forces us to kind of be in this way that we like risk and failure feels uncomfortable and telling you how we feel feels uncomfortable and going for what we want feels uncomfortable. I mean, there's no better example of this than in the middle of, you know, the health crisis. You know, if you go on a Zoom call, you know, what, what do the women do, right? When our dog barks or our child comes in, we immediately shut off video and we turn off audio because we don't want to disturb you and we don't want you to judge us. What do the guys do? They grab their kids and they put them on their lap and like, look at Henry. Isn't he so cute? I'll tell you what I'm, I'm further aware of right now uh, because of the Zoom experience and culture on just in the masculine feminine, just the amount that the men by default feel comfortable speaking mm-hmm. comparatively to, you know, the, the leadership teams, you know, of women. And what I'm happy about with the organizations that I work with, we're all getting this opportunity to learn through, you know, this moment of reflection, this great pause you know, what it can mean to really empower people around us. And I'd love to know more, like, you know, now with Girls Who Code, with politics, what are you leaning into right now the most and and what's expanding right now for you? I think for Girls Who Code, I'm thinking a lot about remote learning and inequity and that a lot of my students are accessing Wi-Fi in a Burger King parking lot or they're an essential worker or they're taking care of a sibling And so if we're in this for another six months or eight months or 12 months, like how are we thinking about education so that we reach the hardest to reach and the most unserved by this moment so we don't leave people behind? I think the second thing is, you know, when it comes to bravery and perfectionism, you know, I think this moment has been really hard for women. You know, women are doing the bulk of the unseen work. 
you know, we're still trying to show up at, and we're exhausted. I'm exhausted. And I know every woman on my team is exhausted. And it almost seems like the inequities that, that showed up in the real world are magnified because you're literally trying to get it done with like a bunch of kids at your feet and like, and you're trying to think and innovate and it's just, it's impossible. And so how are we, how are we encouraging women to kind of let go to, to, to basically ask for what they need? And it's hard to do that in a moment where we have millions of people unemployed and you feel like you can't be brave. So, you know, I'm thinking a lot about, about that. And then, you know, the third piece with everything that's happening in our country right now with police brutality and the protest and the Trump administration, and it is a moment where we have to get active. And like I said, I've been marching since I was 13. And so I'm so proud, though, of so many friends and family members who haven't gotten involved before, who haven't gotten engaged before, who are asking themselves what they can do. What I keep telling folks is like, lean into your own family, lean into your own organization, figure out, like if you're an investor, how many black founders have you invested in? If you're in education, how many black kids have you mentored? If you are Asian American or white, like what does allyship look look to you? And how do you look at yourself and ask yourself, am I truly anti-racist? How can I show up differently? Am I willing to give up my privilege? Well, one of the things I think about is like means of production and, you know, ownership of the outcomes. It might have something to do with worker representation on the boards of their organizations, whereas there's been a culture of boosting shareholder returns by cutting jobs in our publicly traded companies for decades. Yep. And so some of these things that are just so brutal to people, it's just such like a winner take all structure. One of the things I see is like these, you know, macro structural changes, like the defund police movement, the idea of reallocating budgets from police to things that are mental wellness and drug treatment mm-hmm. facilities and investments in education and job training through decriminalization. There's like a practical way to get to some of these things. Where do you fall on this? I mean, rich people have way too much and society ha- is so incredibly unequal in every aspect, right? Whether it's in education, whether it's in housing segregation, whether it's in who gets locked up and who doesn't, you know, you know, police officers oftentimes are guardians in certain, in certain places and are, you know, perpetrators in others. This is a reckoning. You know, Arundhati Roy talked about how like we're literally in the middle of a portal right now between the past and the present. And we've tried a lot of things. And, you know, when I think about like my parents that came to this country with nothing, $10 in their pockets, and they were able to achieve the American dream. But the reality is the American dream isn't open to everyone. And, you know, if you're black and you're born poor in this country, you often stay poor. You don't even have a chance. I'm pretty much only down with leaders who are talking about real radical change because we need it right now. We have to do things differently. You know, it's so funny. You and I both come from a world of like tech and a lot of friends in tech. And when I look at the leaders of of some of these technology companies, call it Facebook, right? Zuckerberg's our age. I would have expected, you know, 10 years ago that he would have built a very different company than he has. And we almost make it seem like, oh, I, I, it's impossible to hire more black people. It's impossible to hire more women. Well, I call bullshit on that. It's not impossible. You don't want to. And so you don't get to hide behind the veil of saying that you're making the world a better place because you're making the world a worse place. And I think it's time for us to hold them accountable. 
Like I often say to people, if you're working Facebook right now, and you're listening, walk out. Demand change because nobody gives up power. You have to take it and it's time to take it back. Institutions are afraid of the consequences of radical action by, you know, definition. Incentives drive our, our, our outcomes often. And, you know, I think that a big question for the modern civic activists is what we're willing to sacrifice. And frankly, for Black Lives Matter, it's not a lot. Equality feels like oppression to those that had the privilege, but it's not, right? It actually might be though, Jeff, right? That's the thing. Like, I think I, as an Indian American, light-skinned woman, have privilege, right? People assume a set of things about me as where the model minority myth came from. And it, and there's a lot of that is, it is true that Asian Americans hold a certain amount of privilege based on the way that white people perceive them. And so we as Asian Americans have to acknowledge that. And, you know, when I built Girls Who Code, I said from the beginning, half the seats are going to be for Black and Latino girls, period. And every year since its inception, I have turned away girls who look like me for other girls because those girls that are South Asian, they have greater privilege. They have greater opportunity. They haven't faced the same amount of structural racism and oppression as Black and brown girls have. And I think we have to acknowledge that. And that means that we're going to have to give up, give stuff up. And I'm okay with that because I have unearned privilege based on being a a, a light-skinned South Asian American woman. It's just a fact. And taking it to Girls Who Code, and one of the things that I just love so much about it upon reflection of the moment that we're in and, you know, giving people a empowering technology for themselves, you know, learning a skill that they can utilize for a long period of time. I'm curious, is there a market for a half a million more girls who code? Could we, if we increase the funding, could we, you know, increase the amount of women that have the means to change their lives? Because it's such a economic war. I believe that if you teach more girls to code, because it's a job skill that companies desperately need, like you're going to increase wealth and economic wealth of communities of color and women by training them with this skill set, full stop. Being an engineer, being a computer scientist, being a programmer, like these are these are jobs. There's so many and then there's so many available and open and that cannot be filled. And so I do think that we make a dent in kind of the in poverty by teaching more girls to code. Like it's something like less than one percent of all the nonprofit dollars are given to women and girls nonprofits. You know, every year I have to, you know, like literally strap my baby to my back and go beg, go beg for money. Even though we've proven, you know, most of the, I would say a significant amount of the women that are majoring in computer science around the country are my alumni, but we still have to continue to prove ourselves and prove our model. I mean, you would be appalled if you knew how some of these corporates, how much money that they give us, you know, it's like they give us what they make in like 10 seconds and we still have to beg for it, even though we're filling their talent up. So it's, it's really, really, really hard. And I think Post-COVID, most of us have lost half of our revenue, given what's happening in the economy. It's a huge, huge challenge, but we're never going to give up. I think we have found a model that actually works, and we just have to double down on it. And, you know, every year I just double down on the amount of girls I'm going to teach and double down on the amount of girls, underserved girls I'm going to teach. And we're just going to keep building, you know, till I think, you know, in 2027, we can get to gender parity. 
And when you have more women who are building products, you have more women of color who are building products, you'll create a more socially just society. Just most recently, one of my students, Karina, has been, you know, 3D printing, you know, PPE equipment for medical workers in New York. I had a group of undocumented students who built a game, a group of like Black Lives Matter activists who brought, who built a, a video game called Harriet Tubman uh, to educate people about institutional racism. I had a student who built an algorithm to help detect whether cancer is benign. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on and on. The ideas are there. The innovation is there. The intelligence is there. The opportunity is there. We just have to keep teaching them. And then we have to fund their businesses. You always had a mirror for when, when we were early in these tech companies and building our businesses and investors saying like, hey, who actually is benefiting from this stuff? Like, and are you working on something that matters? Like, does anybody really need another version of the same social game? Do we have to have like a subscription peanut butter company that delivers that to our, like, it's like, these are not things that the greatest mind right. should be dedicating their time to. Right. Do you believe in this as a general theme, like vocational education? Cause you went down one route, which was deeply, you know, committed to perfection. You went to an Ivy league school and now, you know, you've come to the wisdom that being brave, but not perfect Take us through that journey a little yeah. bit. Like, how has your mindset changed? Nahal and I were talking about this the other day. Um, you know, John Hope Bryant's book, The Memo, right? And his basic thesis is, is that, you know, some communities got the memo on how to build, you know, institutional wealth, right? And for many communities of color, they didn't get the memo. Since my parents came here with nothing and they had a vision of America, like my father used to say to me every day, Reshma, you can be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer, period. You know, if I had come to him and said, you know, I want to major in music studies or whatever, he would have been like, no, you're not. Because he got the fact that like I had to make, get a job that would pay me a certain wage so that I could pay my bills. And so I am of the mindset for many communities that don't have institutional wealth that you have to go into jobs that are secure. And that's really hard to resolve with passion. Like you, you love what you do. I love what I do. And like the goal of life is to love what you do and make money doing it. But that's not, that's not possible for everybody. I think the thing is, is that we, we though have to be, especially in this moment of automation where every day another industry is getting automated by computers and robots, the portion of jobs that are going to be open where you can actually make a great wage are going to be small. And we got to make sure that all young people have the memo on what those jobs are. Art of the Hustle will be right back after this short break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, 
the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you think about the jobs that you're training these these girls to have in the future or the skill set that moves them into computer science, it seems hyper, you know, opportune for the 2020s, 2030s. I'm just curious if like, that's just a feeling or if that's, you know, how are these things expanding? I think COVID has like accelerated, accelerated that, right? Like we are, we, we've gotten, I think we've, you know, we're where we are today where we thought we would have been 10 years from now or five years from now. Right. And so it's even quicker than we thought. And we're way behind kind of educationally on just even educating people about the basics. I can't tell you how many schools I go into and kids are still learning Microsoft word, given how much of remote learning that we're doing. There are very few really great tools where you can actually kind of sustain a classroom's interest on a piece of technology I think to me, the most important thing is to teach people how to computationally think, how to solve a problem. And that's why, especially for women, I'm so obsessed with teaching them how to be brave, not perfect, because I think a lot of women don't pursue entrepreneurship because they think that they can't figure it out themselves. And if it doesn't come to them right away, they're not prepared. You know, Jack Dorsey, who's a friend, you know, said something to me almost like 10 years ago that really stuck with me. He said, you know, to create something, you don't have to be an expert. You have to have passion. And I think for a lot of women, they thought, well, I'm not an expert on Bitcoin or I'm not an expert on biotechnology or I'm not an expert on you know space and science. So I can't go create that. And that's not what it's about. It's about being passionate, right? And believing that you can actually at any age learn anything. So for me, I'm the most 
excited or passionate about teaching that skill set because I think that that will prepare them for whatever the future brings them at whatever speed it's coming. If you're starting from zero, you know, building a skill like this that that can be an empowering technology, but often it's really hard when we have like, you know, emotional issues or societal issues. There's so many things that are coming at us right now. Do you have any mental practices or have you seen practices that empower you or empower your students to get past those things and continue to lean in on on self-investment? For me, it's about how do you encourage women to make the braver choice or, or people to make the braver choice or the more risky choice. And the thing is, is that you'll never make the braver choice if you're tired. Like you can't be brave if you're exhausted. And I think right now everybody is exhausted. And so like it's never been more important to think about your sleeping patterns. You know, are you getting a minute to meditate? Like I, no matter what, have stuck to my routine. So like I still get up at 7.30 and take the dog out and then do my workout or, and then play with the baby. And then, you know, like I, I, I stick to the things that I know that I need to do to, to replenish myself. And so this idea of like getting rest is so, so, so important right now. When we kicked this interview off, I knew that we would, uh, you know, talk, talk a lot about, you know, the philosophies of, you know, brave, not perfect. Are there a couple of the women that come to mind who you admire that, that embody this philosophy? For me, you know, I grew up really being inspired and moved by Hillary Clinton. And part of the reason why I love Hillary is she, she is a lot like Cardi B. And I said, like, no F's given. And no matter how much she gets pushed down, kicked down, she, like she dusts off that pantsuit and she keeps going. I've been so moved by these young activists, you know, whether they're in BLM or in March for Our Lives or in climate change, their ability to speak truth to power and to not feel like, well, I'm too young to make change or I'm too young to speak on this has just moved me. Like the protesters, like they are out there in the middle of a health crisis, shoulder to shoulder, putting their health at risk to fight for equality and justice and to speak up and say what's right. Like that moves me. I think that by being a part of a movement, you know, you can be the hero and there's no leader necessarily to the awakening of our desire to have a more just and civic society. We're, you know, in this unique moment in time where we all want to be a part of that. And, you know, one of the places that you know, I know is so essential is at the ballot box in November, you know, that we all, that we all vote and not just that we vote for president, but we vote for reformist district attorneys. Truthfully, you know, Rush, like we're, you know, the same generation and, you know, you were brave and you did go for it and you did run for Congress a decade ago. And then you built this incredible organization that doesn't treat, you know, causes, but treats symptoms There's no question here. I just want to close out that, you know, I really appreciate you being on the podcast. I really admire you and, you know, how you have led with your actions. And uh, I love that we get to be friends. I'm so glad. I mean, you know, Nalan, I love you guys so much and so grateful to your friendship. And I've loved watching you. And, you know, I think you, you have this kind of powerful opportunity with the with with Summit to kind of convene different people and have these hard conversations. I will. Well, thank you for being in the Art of the Hustle. Thanks for listening and uh, see you next time.
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.